0: and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 8. Joshua 8, and uh, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a bunch of these black ones that are scattered underneath the seats uh, around you, and if you're using one of those, you will find Joshua chapter 8 on page 172. Joshua chapter 8. So, what, what do you do after a major spiritual failure? Uh, perhaps you've been struggling with a besetting sin for a, a long time. It could be pride. It could be anger. It could be lust, covetousness. You've been fighting against this sin, and, and there comes a moment maybe where you, you begin to feel like you perhaps turned a corner in the battle, and things are going well, and you're, you're moving forward. You're having some success, and uh, and and then suddenly you experience a major spiritual collapse. And that thing that you hated in your life so much, the thing you just want out of your life, it ends up coming back, and you end up doing it again, and you just fall flat on your face. Have you been there? I I can't believe I got angry again. I can't believe I, I fell into pride again. I can't believe I I fell into lust or whatever it might be. And now you're wallowing in defeat and you feel a distance between you and God. You feel like an utter failure. And I don't know about you, but there's been times where I've fallen into a certain uh, sin and I am tempted to think, well, that's it. God is done with me for sure. I have failed for the 5,000th time, and surely I have stretched God's patience to the limit, and He is sick of me, and surely this time He will cast me aside. I've had thoughts like that before, and they are depressing, and they are spiritually paralyzing, like you can't even move forward with your life. And, and, and in my worst moments, I, I've even felt like, what's the point of trying? There, there's… There is nothing in my life that I've experienced that brings more fear and insecurity and despair than the sense that God is not with me, that His hand of blessing and favor have been withdrawn from my life. And and, and that's what sin in your life can do. It It can drum up those kinds of feelings. Thousands of years ago, the assembly of Israel felt this exact kind of fear. Things had been going well for them, Uh, They were marching victoriously into Canaan, the land that God had promised to give them, a land filled with fierce and powerful and very evil Canaanite tribes, uh, people that were so persistently wicked, uh, even sacrificing their little boys and girls to their satanic god Molech. Uh, It it was so bad that God deemed it appropriate to completely wipe out this corrupt civilization. They were a dangerous and scary people, so much so… That the previous generation of Israelites before Joshua uh, refused God's commission to go into Canaan because they deemed warfare against these people a suicide mission. And that's why, as the book of Joshua began, uh, God told him to be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. His presence and his power would guarantee victory, and God was indeed with them. Uh, In chapter 6, for example, we saw Israel standing before the mighty walled Canaanite city of Jericho, and God in but a moment caused the walls of the city to collapse, and Israel was able to easily march in and overthrow that city. It was a great moment but it was a moment ruined by a great failure. Because God had given uh, explicit instructions to Israel to not only destroy all the inhabitants of Jericho, but to devote all of the plunder to God. But an Israelite soldier named Achan, we read about this last week, Achan, in his greed, Nevertheless, grabbed some of the plunder for himself. His love of gold outweighed his love of God. And because of the unity and corporate solidarity of Israel, Achan's sin and guilt was owned by all of Israel. All of Israel was seen to have broken faith with God. And so, in chapter 7, when they attacked the next city, the city of Ai, which, by the way, was a much smaller and weaker city than Jericho, they attacked it, and they nevertheless, failed, they were beaten back because God was angry over Israel's sin, and so he opposed not Ai, but Israel in battle. And Israel ran away in humiliation and defeat. And and Joshua becomes fearful as he learns firsthand the horrifying reality that sin causes a separation between man and God. And God tells Joshua, I will not be with you because there is sin in the camp and it must be dealt with. And that meant dealing with Achan. And Joshua chapter 7 ends with Achan's execution and a heap of stones being piled over his corpse as a reminder to the people that the wages of sin is always death. To refuse to walk with the God of life always brings destruction. And so the question is, what now? Uh, what, what, what do God's people do on the heels of a devastating failure where, where we have experienced a major fall because of sin? And what will God do with us? Will He throw His people away because we have failed Him for the 10,000th time? Joshua chapter 8 is written to answer those questions and to give God's people encouragement. And hope. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're coming out of a major epic fail, uh, a spiritual fail, uh, God is going to have a surprising and refreshing word for you out of a text that you may have never received hope and encouragement from. And that's why I'm so excited to preach this text to you this morning. So please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. Joshua chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. And read on down through verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, "'Do not fear and do not be dismayed. "'Take all the fighting men with you "'and arise and go up to Ai. "'See, I have given into your hand "'the king of Ai and his people, "'his city and his land. "'And you shall do to Ai and its king "'as you did to Jericho and its king, "'only its spoil and its livestock "'you shall take as plunder for yourselves.'" lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee from them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, well, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I've commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between uh, Bethel and Ai to the west west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning, and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and sent them, set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city... And that the smoke of the city went up. Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua." When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction." Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would impact the preaching of your word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would give help and illumination to the congregation who is hearing your word, that we all might better understand the message that you have for your people this morning through this ancient text. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> You're thinking, how in the world can I get encouragement from that passage? Well, let's see what God does. If this morning you are humbled and broken in the wake of your sin against God, uh, the Lord in this text, I believe, has at least five truths for you, five things you need to be reminded of as you struggle to pick yourself back up after a devastating spiritual fall. And the first thing that you need to be reminded of is the incredible faithfulness of God, the incredible faithfulness of God. The failure of Israel really highlights the faithfulness of God. When God's people fail, And even when God's people are disciplined by God for their failures, failure never has the final word. While sin can bring a separation between God and His people, God always takes the initiative to restore the relationship. Even in chapter 7, though God's anger burned against Israel because of Israel's sin, who is the one who exposes the sin in the camp? It's God. Uh, Who is the one who exposes Achan. It's God. And who is the one who leads Israel to judge that sin so that God's anger might be turned away from Israel? Again, it's God. You see, God could have just left Israel. He could have abandoned them and said, these people always fail me, they never let me down, they always let me down, they, they uh, never can get it right, and so I'm going to wash my hands of them and be done with this people. I'm going to find another people to work with. I wonder if you've ever felt like God might treat you that way after you have failed him yet again, that, that he would wash his hands of you and cast you aside because you were not good enough for him. I wonder if you feel that way right now. But notice here in chapter 8, that God doesn't toss his people aside. He instead makes sure that the sin in the camp was dealt with, that the the sin that was separating Israel from God's blessing. And what happens when the sin is dealt with? Well, if you look up at the prior verse, chapter 7, verse 26, it says, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And once the Lord turns from his burning anger, then what? Well, chapter 8 verse 1, and the Lord said to Joshua, "Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Arise, go up to Ai." That that is absolutely Remarkable. He he gives this beautiful word of encouragement to Joshua. This is the patience and the forgiveness of God. When Joshua and Israel sincerely deal with the sin and they humble themselves before God for his mercy, God turns around and he acts like nothing has ever happened. He comes to Joshua with, with gentle tenderness because when God forgives, he truly forgives. In other words, he's not like us. Sometimes we may forgive, but we secretly hold on to grudges. We forgive, and we do not forget. We secretly keep a list of the other person's sin in our back pocket, and we are prepared to use it against that person if they let us down. That's not like God. Sin forgiven is sin forgotten. I love Proverbs 28. that says... Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. I've gotten parentheses there. That's what Achan did. Uh, He concealed his sin. He covered it up, and he did not prosper in the end. But then the verse goes on to say, but he who confesses and forsakes his sin will obtain mercy. So, Some people don't realize that God is that merciful, uh, that he is very quick to forgive and move on. But again, we struggle comprehending that because we're not like that. We don't move on. We remain bitter for 30 years about something. But the Scripture says this about God, for as, so as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And so this morning, I want you to, first of all, be encouraged by the merciful heart of God, especially if you found yourself tangled up in sin yet again and you have failed yet again, or, or if you're haunted by past sins. There are many Christians that are living in the past. They are haunted by old sins, things that they have done five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and they're still carrying around a sense of guilt over those things. Christians are, are often paralyzed by fear. They are afraid of God. They are afraid of the future, and they're afraid to even try to move on and serve God, and yet God's message to Joshua is stop being afraid. My anger has been turned away. So, so Joshua, get up, get going, and move forward with your next assignment from me. God loves to restore wayward, fallen people. David in Psalm 23 says, he restores my soul. Or remember Peter in the New Testament. Jesus predicted that Peter would fall away and deny Christ three times. Jesus knew in advance the horrible sin that Peter would commit. Uh, And most of us are pretty familiar with that that story there. But sometimes we forget what else Jesus said. Yes, he did predict Jesus' failure, but but he also, or he predicts Peter's failure. But he turns to Peter, and then he says, I have prayed for you, and when you have turned again… When you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. Encourage those other disciples. Minister to them. And and here we see that Jesus did not just predict Peter's fall. He also planned for Peter's restoration and subsequent ministry in the wake of his failure. Peter's sin. Wasn't the end of the story. He was forgiven and later used by God in powerful ways to build his church. That's the God that you serve. And of course, none of this means that that we will never experience temporal consequences for our sin. Sometimes God deems that we should to discipline us and to grow us. Peter himself suffered short-term consequences. But on the other hand, we should never fear that God will leave or forsake us or that while we are yet breathing, God can't use us and work in us and show his glory through us. Again, the psalmist says, as A father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And so, if you have by faith received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know what that means? It means that you are a child of God. It means that you are his son. It means that you are his daughter, and you should expect a constant stream of compassion and mercy from your father, because the anger of God's wrath towards your sin has been turned away because it was turned towards Jesus 2,000 years ago, as Jesus paid the price of your sin in your place. And so, if you this morning are lamenting over your faithlessness before God, it's okay to lament over that. But make sure that you don't stop there. That's not the whole story. Make sure that you remember the incredible promise of 2 Timothy chapter two, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The uh, 17th century minister Samuel Rutherford, who spent years in a prison in Aberdeen, he wrote this, he said, often and often, I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me, but, blessed be his name, he keeps it in heaven safe, and he stands by it always. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So, do not fear, and do not be dismayed. In addition to seeing the incredible faithfulness of God, chapter 5 also reminds us of the generous provision of God. God says you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. So as with Jericho, Israel is to go in and destroy the city and its people, there is one important difference between Jericho and Ai. And you may have caught that when I was first reading the text. God says of Ai in verse 2, its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Now, you can't read verse 2 without thinking about Achan. Achan's problem was greed and covetousness, right? He saw the gold and the silver and the expensive fancy coat from Babylon, and, and, and despite God's prohibition, he reaches out and he grabs for it. He takes some of the plunder of Jericho. And reading this in chapter 8, you can't help but think, if only Achan had waited until Ai! Uh, If only he would have waited, he would have had an opportunity to take uh, whatever he wanted at the command of God. But a covetous person can't wait because at the center of a covetous heart is unbelief. In particular, unbelief in regards to God's care and provision. A covetous person does not believe that God is enough. A covetous person does not believe that God's provision is sufficient. Covetousness springs from a heart that is suspicious of God. Aiken succumbed to what Dale Davis calls serpent theology. What is serpent theology? Well, take your eyes with me briefly to chapter 7 where Achan, in his confession, describes to us the anatomy of a covetous heart. He says in verse 21, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted or desired them and took. There's three verbs there. Achan saw, Achan desired, Achan took. That is exactly how Genesis 3 describes Eve's rebellion against God as she listened to and believed the voice of the serpents. If you know that story, God had placed Adam and Eve in paradise, and all of their needs were met. They had all the food and the prosperity and the satisfaction that they they needed for life. And, And God gave them just one prohibition, just one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the hundreds and thousands of trees you can enjoy, but you eat from that one and you'll die. And so what happens? What does a covetous heart do in that kind of situation? Does a covetous heart appreciate God's lavish generosity and and is thankful and enjoys the thousands of other trees that can be enjoyed? Is that what a covetous person does? No, instead a covetous heart ignores all of the other things that are permitted and focuses on the one thing that is prohibited. And that's when in Genesis three, the serpent, the devil comes along and capitalizes on that and focuses Eve's attention on that tree, that one tree, suggesting that God is actually holding back the very best thing from her, that God is not really generous, that God is, not re- that, that God is actually stingy. You think about that, A- against the backdrop of the incredible generosity of God. And, and, the, and the suggestion here is that God is, is stingy and that she really can't trust God to provide for her or meet, for her, meet her needs. And so, if she's really going to be satisfied and happy and have her needs met, she's got to reach out and grab the thing that is prohibited. And so, you see that tragic moment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Notice those three words. Those same three things that Achan experienced. Saw, desire, took. Saw, desire, took. And so, Adam and Eve did that. They ate. And what happened? Death came to the universe because they embraced serpent theology and listened to their covetous hearts and did not believe God would provide. Death came to them and death came to Achan, all because they did not believe and trust that God would provide. If only Adam and Eve would have trusted God. If only Achan would have waited. You see, Achan assumed that God was stingy and that he was going to have to look after himself, and tragically, he came just one chapter short of missing the wonderful command of God in chapter 8. Go to Ai. Take its spoil. Take its livestock. And of course, we have the same weakness as Eve and Achan, don't we? Uh, We don't trust that God is generous uh, we get suspicious that God is holding back from us what we really need. Uh, we ignore all of the, the many blessings He gives us every day and we get upset about the one thing He hasn't given us and we focus on that thing and we get bitter and increasingly suspicious of God and, and that one thing that we want becomes bigger and bigger and God gets smaller and smaller and so we disregard God and we will even sin to get what we think that we need. If you have fallen spiritually, you come here this morning in the wake of a spiritual failure of of sin, one of the things you need to remember is that God is generous with you. He is generous towards you. Uh, Part of the reason we sin is because we don't really believe that, and we take our eyes off of all of the blessings that God has given us to enjoy, and we put it on the things that he has prohibited, thinking that's what we really need. And so, part of the fight against sin is to remember the generous provision of God, that it is better to wait on God's provision and God's timing than to be like Eve or Achan and try to reach out and satisfy ourselves through disobeying God's clear commands. If Achan really believed that God was generous and would meet every single need he had in the very best way, then, then guess what? Achan would have been alive in Joshua chapter 8, and he would have been able to enjoy the provision and gifts that God gave the rest of Israel in the wake of the battle of Israel, but or, battle of Ai, but he missed out he missed out. If if only Achan would have diligently lived according to what Jesus would say later on, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, everything you need will be given to you by a good and generous God. Achan did not believe that, and his unbelief led to disaster. One commentator wisely said that recognizing God as the giving God is the prerequisite for faithfulness. Contentment with God's goodness is our antidote for apostasy. So, let's reject serpent theology. Let's cling to right theology that says that God is a good God who always gives good things to His children. So, we are reminded of the incredible faithfulness of God. We're reminded of the, gener- uh, the, the generous provision of God. But there's something else that… Um, this story is to remind us of, and, and that is the, uh, the, the people's dependence on the power of God. Dependence on the power of God. I want us to think about how Israel sinned in chapter 7. We already know of one way. Achan, he insulted the worth of God by trading God in for silver and gold and a fancy cloak. But that, that wasn't Israel's only problem. I think there was another problem, and I wonder if you caught it last week. Do you remember when Joshua sent the spies to Ai and and after the spies give their report, Israel is pretty confident that they can defeat the city. Why? Why Why is Israel confident that they can beat Ai? Go back to chapter 7, verse 3. It says, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack AI. Do, do not make the whole people toil up. Therefore, they are few. Do you see a problem with this? Remember in chapter 2, when Joshua sent out spies to Jericho, and when they returned from their mission, they returned also with confidence. Why? Why did the spies in chapter 2 believe that they could win against Jericho. The spies at the end of chapter 2 said, the Lord has given this city into our hands. In other words, they recognize that victory was assured on the basis of God's strength. But when you read chapter 7, the spies who went to Ai, I'm going to assume these are different spies than the ones in chapter 2, than the Jericho spies. I like them better. They come back and they also have confidence but what is the basis for the confidence of Israel in chapter 7? Numbers. Human strength. AI is a small city. They, they hardly got anyone there. We can take them. We, we can do this. I think that's a red flag right there. In chapter 6 and in the battle of Jericho, everything was focused on God and what God could do. God gave the orders. God made the walls fall down. God gave instructions on what to do when they entered the city. The whole focus of chapter 6 is God. It's a very God-centered chapter. Chapter 7, the focus is man-centered. Not just the man Achan and his spectacular self-centeredness, but just the people of Israel in general. We're going to win because there's hardly any of them there. We've got this. Uh, Perhaps they were emboldened by the success of Jericho. Or perhaps they thought, well, well, God will handle the big things like parting rivers and knocking down city walls, but we can take the small things like AI. But of course, we know what happens. We saw it last week. They went to AI and they got whooped. And they were terrified. Why? Why? Why did they lose? Because the issue was never an issue of mathematics. In other words, the spies and Joshua were weighing the numbers of Ai and considering the the appropriate amount of soldiers to send there as if the results of the battle would hinge on numbers. You see, the issue was that they were placing their confidence in the wrong place. Self-confidence had replaced confidence in God. Uh, Who had parted the Jordan? God. Who had blasted the walls of Jericho? God. God. Okay, and so who, according to the Israeli spies, would take the city of Ai? Oh, two or three thousand men. That's all we need. You see, the problem for Israel in chapter 7 was more than just aching. There there was something else going on in the the spirit and the attitude of the larger community of God's people, where where it seems like the center of gravity in the minds of the people was beginning to shift from the power of God to the strength of man. And folks, that is always, always, always a prelude for failure. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, "'Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses.'" Right, right, that was a warning because like, Egypt was a superpower, and, and, and if Israel really needs help to, 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 to defeat their enemies, let, let's get these tough guys and strong guys from Egypt to help us. We'll pay them as mercenaries. God says, "'Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many,' right, numbers, mathematics, and trust in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord.'" the reason for Israel's defeat was that God was not with them. And so, even the smallest battle, they could not win. And that was an important lesson for them, and it's an important lesson for us. We all have a tendency to overestimate our ability. Uh, Going back again to the story of Jesus and Peter, where where Jesus had predicted Peter's fall, how did Peter respond? Do you remember? Did did Peter say, really, Lord, Lord, help me? Uh, uh, help me to not fail. Uh, help me to stay faithful. Is that how Peter responded? That would have been the right answer. He doesn't respond that way. He instead pridefully puffs out his chest and says, "No, Lord, you might say that I'm going to deny you, but I, I'm never going to do that. Even if the others fall away, I'm not going to do that. right? He threw his all of his companions under the bus and said, they might be losers. but but I'm not going to fall away. And hours later, just a few hours later, Peter spiritually collapses and under pressure denies the Lord three times. Peter trusted in himself. And thus he proved the proverb true that says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And constant dependence of God's people on God's power is an unchanging principle, not just for Old Testament Israel or the New Testament disciples, but for you right now. But we have a hard time believing that because, let's be honest, how many of us spend so little time seeking God's power and strength through prayer and through the reading of God's Word? Let's get real about this. Uh, We wake up in the morning and we read Facebook or the news turn on the radio, and we don't spend time pleading with God in prayer for His power for the day. Why? Because we are like Israel. We know that we need God's help for the big things like Jericho, but the little things like AI, like being a godly employee on the job, or being a faithful husband and father, or going to school as a Christian and living for God in that situation, or, or being holy while running errands, we think we've got that. That's just a little thing. We, we, we pray when we've got the big things coming up. Oh my, cancer diagnosis, boom, hit my knees and praying. But just an average ordinary day, doing average ordinary things, prayer, the Word, sometimes flies out the window just a little thing. We'll be fine. It's okay. It's okay if I haven't prayed today or, or, or have had my faith increased through the reading of his word because what's going on today, these are small things that I can manage. Oh, remember the warning of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says, let anyone, anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, that apart from me, you can do a handful of things. Is that what he said? He said, apart from me, you can do two or three things. <laughs> no, apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. And and what Jesus means is that apart from my power and you, you can do nothing good, nothing of value for the kingdom. You cannot fulfill the mission that I have called you to, whether it is attacking AI or whether it is being a mom changing diapers for the glory of God all day long. Whatever it might be and all the other things you could be doing in between. You cannot do any of it. You can't be salt and light and my representative and ambassador in the world apart from me. Now, by the way, a a reliance, a dependence on God's power doesn't mean that you are passive and that you just don't do anything. We see here in chapter 8 this wonderful intermingling of God's sovereign power with human responsibility and action. God says in verse 2, I've given the city into your hands. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get the, the, the victory. He speaks of Ai as, 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 as a gift. I'm giving, this in, I'm giving this to you. That's God's sovereignty. But on the other hand, Israel doesn't just sit on the ground and wait for God to do it all. That, that's not what dependence on God's power means. And over the next several verses, and, we, and, and we've read this, this, this elaborate battle plan this military strategy, this ambush. And the, and the author takes great pains to describe what Joshua and the people are doing to set themselves up for victory. By the way, this shows us that God doesn't do all, everything the same way all the time. This is very different than the, than the Jericho battle, isn't it? And yet the common denominator, though, is that in both situations, God is at work. And God sometimes works through the, these, these, these incredible, obviously, uh, supernatural means, but then also many times, most of the time, works through very ordinary means. And so, God is giving them AI as a gift. The people are preparing and planning and about to go in the battle, but. At the, at the, on the other hand, as the fighting is going on, what is Joshua doing in verse 18? You would think that Joshua, being the commander of the army, would be going down there and he would be, you know, doing his martial art moves and just like, you know, in the thick of things, commanding his troops. He's not, he's not doing that. He, he's got a javelin, and a javelin is meant to go into the, you, you stick the pointy end in the body of the enemy, but he's not doing that. Uh, he's doing something else with the, the javelin. He is standing apart. Uh, he, he is holding forth that javelin. God tells him to do this, and, and this is a symbol of God's deliverance of AI into the hands of Israel. Israel is fighting, and they are striving, but at the same time, God is working in and through them. That's exactly how the Christian life works. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Or I think about Colossians uh, chapter one, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So God is, uh, Paul is working, Paul is doing things. He is active and yet God is working within him. The, the, the power of God is propelling him forward. I really like this one. This one is awesome. This is in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? So you do stuff. You live out the Christian life. You obey God. And then he says, then he really messes you up and says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And and in those verses, you... You, you see a, a human striving, a human, a human working. Christianity isn't a passive religion. It's not about letting go and letting God. <clears throat> You're actually doing things. God won't obey for you, but but in the end, what's the difference maker? What what's the decisive factor that prospers your work and your efforts? God's strength and God's power. And so, if you are recovering from a spiritual fall you would do well to ask yourself about your reliance on God's strength and God's power. Have you been focusing on yourself and your ability? Have you been neglecting the means of grace that God has given you to empower and strengthen you, such as prayer and and the the scriptures and fellowship with, and accountability to his people? All of these things, God's power and energy works through. And And if it is true, if it's true that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing Then that means, that means, think about what the flip side of that means. That means connected to Jesus, we can do anything that He has called us to do. So let's remember to be dependent on His power. There's something else this chapter reminds us of as well, and that is the terrible judgment of God. The terrible judgment of God. Uh, Look down at verse 28. This is the aftermath So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day, that is to the the time period of of the writer of Joshua. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Verses like this make Joshua really challenging for me to preach through. Verses like this cause some churches to just ignore the book of Joshua altogether or do a couple of select verses here and there. You know, be strong and courageous, rah, rah, rah. We can all rally around that. It's verses like this that cause modern Western readers to recoil. It, it offends our sensibilities. The city is burned. The, the king of Ai is killed. His dead body hung on a tree all day. This image is shocking, and horrifying. And friends, that is precisely the point. It is meant to get our attention because we don't take sin seriously. We joke about sin. We wink at sin. We don't think it's a big deal. We're entertained by it. We laugh at it. We've made peace with it. And what we keep forgetting is that sin is horrible. Horrible. Sin is evil. Sin brings destruction. Sin is not something that is meant to have a laugh track under it. And it ruins people's lives in time and in eternity. And we keep forgetting that God hates it. And I think we keep forgetting that God hates it for for a number of reasons, but I think one of them is is because God, in His patience and kindness, seems to allow so many of us to get away with so much of it for so long. Because He's kind and patient. And, and, And these vivid and horrifying pictures of God's judgment that we see here in Joshua 8 are meant to jolt us. And, and wake us up out of our complacency and remind us of how awful sin really is because we really don't get it. That's another reason why you and I still sin. We, we don't fully realize the horror of sin, how destructive it is to us and others, and how it deeply offends God and that it will be fully and finally judged. Now, the hanging of the king of Ai on a tree what wasn't an arbitrary thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, Israel is given instructions regarding what to do to someone who has committed a capital offense. And and after he was put to death, he was to be hung up on a tree or a post to serve as a warning that the results of breaking the law was punishable by death. Uh, But the corpse was to be taken down before nightfall. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. One commentator is very helpful when he explains that the body was not accursed of God because it was hanging on a tree. It was instead hanging on a tree because it was accursed by God. And the body was not accursed of God simply because it was dead, for all men die. But it was a curse because of the reason for the death, crime against God's law. And the hanging of the king of Ai should be viewed in this light where we have a solemn sign that he and all of the Canaanites stand under the curse and judgment of God for sin. Uh, The king of Ai hanging there really represents all of his people and their sins, uh, the, the, the sins of child sacrifice and sexual immorality and bestiality and all the other horrific practices that they were involved in. And this bloody hanging is a horrifying picture of the end result of such rebellion against God. It's meant to be shocking. It's meant If you're offended, you, you've gotten the point. It's meant to be offensive. And it is a picture not for the people of Ai, because they're all dead. It's a picture meant for Israel. And they, are, they, they aren't to consider the dead king on a tree and think they are so superior to him. They are to look and see and be shocked and be scandalized and repulsed by sin and should seek to flee from it themselves. I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, They are to realize what Jesus would say later on, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And the repentant will realize that they have been spared of such a fate, not because of their inherent goodness, but because of God's amazing grace. And that's my final observation about this story is the amazing grace of God. You may be like, well, where is the grace of God in this story? Well... I think God wanted Israel to be very aware of his grace towards them as they marched through the wreckage of first Jericho and now in Ai as they saw that horrible corpse on a tree. God said before Israel entered into the land, God wanted to give them a heads up about something that was very important. And he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 9, not because of your righteousness, or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. That's really important. In other words, God is saying, don't think that because you're still breathing, it's because you're wonderful. Don't get cocky, and don't get arrogant. If I am destroying an unrighteous people, the Canaanites, to judge them... And if I am sparing another unrighteous people, Israel, it must mean that I am simply choosing to give you grace because I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Horrible judgment and fire came upon Ai. And as Israel is standing there in the smoldering ruins, and by the way, the Ai means ruin. And as they are standing there in the ruins... They see what they should see, they they, they see what they deserve, and they should shudder with horror and drop to their knees with joy. And they should say, if we have been spared from sin's judgment, and if we are coming into the promised land because of such great grace, then how can we go on living in sin and disobedience? Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember that heaven is not coming to you because of your own righteousness and and your own uprightness of heart. You are headed towards your promised land because of another king that hung on another tree. Jesus was cursed by God. The same God who judged the king of Ai judged his own son. So if you thought Ai was harsh, look to the cross. As Jesus was treated by God as no better than the king of Ai. In fact, he was treated worse than the king of Ai. And King Jesus represented all of the sins of his people. All of the lying and all of the lust and all of the anger and all of the covetousness and all of the horrible things that we have done, all of those things were put on Jesus and, and sin and all of its revolting horror was seen to be what it really is on the cross, be scandalized. If the hanging of the king of Ai shows the ugliness of sin, how much more is the hanging of Christ nailed to a criminal's cross? But the difference between the king of Ai and King Jesus is that the Canaanite king could only die for his own sins and he could save nobody. But Jesus died not for his sins, but ours and the apostle paul writes in galatians chapter 3 that christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree yes he was thinking deuteronomy when he wrote that and so the severity of god's hatred and judgment towards sin was fully and was fully focused on jesus And in the midst of that horrifying moment comes amazing grace for us because he was cursed for us so that we might not ultimately succumb to the curse of death and judgment ourselves. And while the king of Ai died and did not rise again, Jesus did. That the king of Ai remained under that pile of stones, but for Jesus on the third day, the stone was rolled away and he comes walking out of the tomb in strength and power and vigor because he was cursed not for his sins, but for ours. So death could not hold him. The king of Ai was conquered by sin, but King Jesus conquered it on our behalf to provide a way of blessing for a cursed people. And so now all who repented their sins and trust in Jesus Christ will be under the curse no longer and will be forgiven of their sins. And and though he or she may one day die, the believer will also one day rise again with Christ to newness of life. That's the final hope of the believer. That's that's your hope. Uh, The amazing grace of God that has been given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus is our only hope. As Colossians chapter two tells us, that God made us alive together with Christ, having, having forgiven us all our tra- trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. On those Roman crosses, they would, they would nail the crimes of the criminal uh, above the head of the, of the criminal. And so, that's this, this imagery here that Paul is thinking about, all, all, of the, all of the debt, all of the evil things that you and I have done, those things are, are, are nailed to the cross, and they stay there. And so, we who believe, even in the wake of our own sin and failures, we should not be fearful or dismayed. We should not think that God will cast us aside, and we can be strong and courageous, not in ourselves, not hoping in ourselves, but hoping in Him.